0: I picked the, the only book that I actually opened my front door and fired it out into the front street. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey readers, I'm Anne Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 211. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader, what should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest.
2: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th.
1: Readers, I know we're all getting in the gift-giving mood, so I want to tell you about a couple of gift guides that will help you find the perfect or at least definitely good gifts you need. First, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, please go back and do that. Novel neighbor owner Holland Saltzman and I take your listener requests for hard-to-shop-for friends and family and do a little literary matchmaking for your requests. And check out the two gift guides on my blog, Modern Mrs. Darcy. We have the 2019 gift guide for book lovers and 15 bookish gifts for kids who love to read. Find them both at modernmrsdarcy.com slash guide. And finally, apropos of today's episode, I always love to see what Sarah Bessie shares in her annual Christmas gift guide to empower women. Check that out at sarabessie.substack.com. That's also where you can subscribe for her newsletter, Field Notes, which I love. In fact, I love it so much that I asked Sarah for special permission to share a quote from her Field Notes newsletter so I could, intre- so I could use it to introduce a chapter in my next book, Don't Overthink It. I'm so glad she agreed. Find out more about Sarah's newsletter and get that great gift guide at sarahbessy.substack.com. Today, I'm having a delightful, deep conversation with guest Sarah Bessie about writing very personal nonfiction and what might spur an author to write a book unlike anything they've written in the past. We also talk about why she can't resist talking about the books she loves so much. Last week on the show, I talked a little about how books can expand hearts and minds, and Sarah has so much to share with me about what books have shifted her perspectives. We're also touching on the books everyone is talking about in Canada. So, if you'd like to add some of these great books from the North to your TBR, make sure to check out our show notes at what should I read next, slash two eleven. That's two one one. And that's where we have links to every book mentioned on this episode. If you are ready for some bookish introspection, let's get to it. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So we are going on four years now of What Should I Read Next? And since the very beginning, I've thought, you know who would be fun to talk to? I think the reason that I just thought you would be such an amazing guest from the beginning is it seems that you cannot help talking about what you're reading what you're enjoying, how much books mean to you, whether or not it's actually relevant to your job. It just seems to seep out of you.
0: <laughs> this is a hundred percent true. I cannot <laughs> shut up about, about the books I read. Mean, I I don't know if I was an evangelical or I'm an ex-evangelical now. I'm not really sure kind of where I fall on that, but I'm very evangelical when it comes to reading.
1: <laughs> I just want to convert
0: everybody to whatever I'm doing. And so yeah, I mean, I feel like oftentimes if I look at my Goodreads, you know, it's just kind of all over the map. And and, uh, in all honesty, I think that that's one of the reasons why I'm excited to talk today is because I think that probably at least a good 80% of the books I've loved most in the last few years have come from recommendations from you. Oh, that's so funny. I mean, you gave me Inspector Gamache. Did I really? I gave you a Canadian? You gave me Louise Penny.
1: Oh. Yes. I'm not sure what to... That's a a lot, Sarah. That's a lot to put on a woman. Right. Okay, I'll try not to get too big ahead about that. We won't even even speak about Wallace Stegner. Oh, I love him so much. And he seems so, somebody was just telling me the other day how Crossing to Safety is such a nine book. And I know we're both nines on the Enneagram.
0: This is true. I think it is. You know, uh,
1: another one was uh, Japer Crow, which led me to Hannah Coulter. So you get to claim all these wonderful Canadian authors. Do you feel like you can just take on literary pride for your entire country? You know
0: what, we have to. When we as a culture are also responsible for Nickelback, we're just going to make sure we claim <laughs> <laughs> Margaret, Atwood. <laughs> Margaret Atwood and we're going to make sure that everybody knows. But, you know.
1: <laughs> well, I don't feel like I get to have a national pride about like the New York authors or the California authors, but Wendell Berry is mine. He is. Because so, he's a Kentuckian. He's right up the road. He has his events like walking distance from my house. Are you serious? Oh, my goodness. A lucky duck. Well, I'm so glad you enjoyed Hannah Coulter and J. Crow. Did you even say J. Crow, or did I just put that in your brain because I wanted it to be there?
0: No, I did say J. Crow for sure. Loved it and actually handed it over to my husband as well. He's not a big novel reader. He's much more of a nonfiction, make sure that there's something practical to be applied sort of reader. Mm -hmm. I handed him uh, J. Crow, and it just is his most favorite novel now that he has ever read,
1: Really, kept
0: reading all of the novels from Wendell Berry one after another. And I just kind of quietly sat in the corner of the couch watching being like, this is an amazing development.
1: (laughs) So you said your reading taste is all over the map.
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I will read everything from, you know, more academic theological work um, that I find really interesting, but also just even, you know, I'm very into spiritual memoirs. And I've started getting into um, more contemporary literature, but I love the classics. And I tend to really like things that have a bit of a story to them. But at the same time, I read all over the map. I mean, I'll read business books and cookbooks. And I mean, all the things I just really enjoy. One of my favorite uh, things actually are cookbooks have essays in them. Those are really fantastic.
1: I love those. Well, your love for Mary Berry is well documented.
0: Yes, this is true. This is going back to the whole being evangelical about the things you like. The Great British Baking Show is up there, which is a very nine show, I think, probably for both of us.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's upset. Everybody's pleasant. <laughs> and when somebody loses, you all cry. Everybody cries. Everybody cries together. Oh, of course they do. And everybody's also cheering each other on. Or if somebody's having a hard time, mm-hmm. they'll step in and help. So I'm just going to spread the weight around and say that you've really inspired me to take a hard look at the Canada Reads list. And I know I've read some good books because you've pointed me in that direction. Oh. Like I remember loving Sharon Bala's The Boat People. And I don't know that I would have found that if you weren't championing Canadian authors the way
0: you oh, do. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. I feel like not enough people read The North you know, kind of as we as what we say here. But the Canada Reads one is a really special one, my sister and I. Um, so it's a contest, actually, or a program that CBC, which is our national broadcaster runs uh, every year, and they will pick you know, five, you know, kind of celebrity judges or, you know, people who are influential within Canadian media or uh, news or landscape. And they will say, what is the book that Canadians need to read right now? And there's a whole podcast around it. It's a competition. People are voting. It's like there's a TV show. I mean, we get all get very into the Canada Reads you know, <laughs> program. And my sister and I, I always make a pact that we will read all the Canada Read books as soon as they're announced. And then we mm-hmm. kind of pick our favorites and we go through the whole thing. And I have read so many incredible books because of the Canada Reads uh, program. That one that you had uh, The Boat People was you know absolutely phenomenal. Uh, the Break by Catherine Vermetta was another one that was... I
1: don't know The Break.
0: You know, it is so incredibly good. It's set in Winnipeg with a community of women and it is just a beautiful and heartbreaking and beautiful story of survival and connection.
1: I would love to hear more. I do know that I've had The Marrow Thieves on my oh, it's list. so good. And I've checked it out of the library at least once and returned it unread. But I think I think that came from Canada Reads and from you. Yeah, it definitely did. The Marrow
0: Thieves is a phenomenal book. Um, it's written kind of probably more for a YA age group, but I really enjoyed it. And my 13-year-old daughter also read it and really enjoyed it, although there's a, a mm-hmm. bit of language in it. But yeah, it was a really, really good book. And she's actually got a new one coming out this year that all of you know the Canadian book retailers are, are talking about quite a bit. So I think you'll really enjoy that one. It's got a bit of a dystopian edge to it, which... You know, I'm always here for a bit of
1: dystopian, apocalyptic literature.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> and uh, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a really good one.
1: Something else that anyone who subscribes to your newsletter, I love your newsletter field notes. I love it so much. But anyone who subscribes to that or follows you on Goodreads knows that you also read a lot. Mm-hmm. A whole lot.
0: Yes, absolutely. I think that's probably the number one question I get because I have this ongoing feature where people can, you know, email in a question. Or
1: Really? That's the thing they want to know the most? (laughs) The
0: number one. (laughs) <laughs> they'll say, how do you read so much? You've got four kids and you write and you, you work full time. And, you know, I think that people are genuinely love to read, but, you know, are wondering where you find time. And I think that there's a lot of, you know, people who write and, and talk about how you can kind of find snatches of time and moments of time and, you know, carrying books with you and that sort of thing. But honestly, I mean, it's it's not quite apples to apples, because I read really fast, and I comprehend quickly. Mm -hmm. And so I have that kind of as a, Mm -hmm. as a starting point, I always have just being someone who can read quickly and comprehend it and hang on to it, uh, which is fortunate. But also, I just read a lot. I mean, I don't watch a whole lot of TV to be perfectly honest and I'm usually reading and, you know, throughout the day as I have kind of moments in time and yeah, Mm -hmm. I really enjoy reading. And so it was one of those things actually when we very first got married, my husband and I, we've been uh, together for 20 years and I remember him before we were living together me kind of saying, well, you know, I like to read. I read a lot, you know, and over dating and engagement. And then all of a sudden, we were living together. And I remember him coming out on a Saturday morning, and I'd been curled up in the couch just reading for hours. I was like, you weren't kidding. There's <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's 100 surprises when you begin living with someone. And, you know, the, the amount that I spend reading is probably at the top of that list. Although, of course, it has had to change, of course, with, you know, seasons of life and having children and, you know, sleeplessness or moments or whatever else. But it seems to be the one thing that tends to reset me or make me feel a little bit mm -hmm. more um, settled. I feel like I'm not my best self if I haven't made time for reading. So in a way, you know, if I try to cut out reading time in an effort to have more time for chores or, or getting things done or work, everything ends up suffering. And it's not not quite as, mm-hmm. as strong of a, an engagement for me if I haven't had that moment to kind of reset and take
1: that time. Mm-hmm. Now, it's possible I'm just looking for validation or maybe commiseration, but the common wisdom is that to be a good writer, you need to be a good reader and you are a writer. And yet I have been so surprised these last few years to discover how the process of putting a book into the world can be really terrible for your reading life. And Sarah, you just put a book out Into the World, which I so enjoyed reading. Thank you so much. I have been so curious about it. It's right here on my shelf, Miracles and Other Reasonable Things. And when you first told me the story about how you submitted what was to be your third manuscript, you didn't like it. You're writing something new, something different, something unexpected, something... I think you used the phrase weird. I mean, obviously, I wanted to get it in my hands as soon as possible, and I so enjoyed reading the final result. And I'd love to hear more about that. But first... What has writing books done for your reading life?
0: Oh, that's a great question. But first, thank you. Thank you for reading it. And Yeah, it is definitely weird at times. So that's good. <laughs> you know, when it comes to reading and writing, um, I actually find that it, it helps me be a better writer to be reading more, I think especially widely. I think sometimes one of the things that people, especially people who write in the genre and lane that I write in, tend to read only books that are in that lane. Right. And so if you write spiritual memoir, you only read spiritual memoirs. And then you can almost end up, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of caught within that genre. And so in a lot of ways, I think that one of the things that's really beneficial as a writer is when you do read really widely, when you read outside of your lane, I feel like it, it rounds out some edges. And it also gives me permission to go further than maybe my genre would allow. In a lot of ways, I felt like this even way back when I was, you know, blogging back in the day, which is I think is how you and I initially met was more through the blogging world. There was a sense for me of never really feeling like I fit. In any one genre, I wrote too much about my kids to be taken seriously Mm -hmm. by a lot of theological writers, and I wrote too much about theology and about um, you know hard or difficult or intense things for people who wanted to read lovely things about raising a family or whatever Mm -hmm. else it was. And so, never feeling like you kind of entirely fit means that then sometimes you'll try to edit out parts of who you are in order to appeal to a particular audience or a particular group. And there's some benefit to that for sure. And I think everybody probably does it, but. For me, reading widely gave me permission to pull and gather all those aspects of who I am, all the aspects of what makes uh, my story or my work matter to me, and say, I think that I can have room for all of it. I don't think I have to edit out Mm -hmm. the fact that I you know, I'm, I'm a mom and I'm raising my kids and that I really encounter God in, in a lot of that. But then also, you know, I have a lot of
1: big thoughts and feelings about patriarchy. And so let's talk about those too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is going to sound cheeky, but I, I mean it quite seriously. You said that you enjoyed a novel that went a little dystopian or a lot dystopian as the case may be. But how can reading The Marrow Thieves make you a better spiritual memoirist?
0: You know, that book in particular
1: was really meaningful to me because um, one thing that
0: has been awakened in me the last number of years has been around the uh, story of Indigenous truth and reconciliation within Canada. My big entry point for a lot of that conversation was through literature, which opened the door mm-hmm. to relationships, which opened the door to really just almost resetting how you understand your nation, how you understand your history, uh, how you understand your place in it, which of course deeply impacts how you write, right, and and what you what you write about. I mean, even in miracles and other reasonable things, I you know talked about how when I was in Italy, I used to always say things like, "Oh well, Canada is such a young country compared to Europe." And now I know that's simply not true. Mm -hmm. You know, we have just as much history, just as much, you know, society and civilization. And like, it simply was erased. And so, if I could show up and say, oh, we're a young country because, you know, we got started in the 1800s, that's not true. You know, Mm -hmm. nothing about that is true. (laughs) It's complete erasure right right, of, of of the actuality in history of Canada. And so, for me, reading books like The Marrow Thieves, which centers Indigenous youth, And in particular, places them as um, endangered precisely because of their giftedness for dreaming. They can still continue to dream and the rest of us have all lost our capacity to dream. You know, again, it's a recentering. It's a resetting, which then changes how you approach God. I think how you approach your place in this story that you believe your life is telling. And in a lot of ways, I feel not only develops, of course, empathy and compassion and knowledge, but um, resets how you see you, you have a tendency to see yourself as the hero of your story. And a lot of times reading books mm. like that or reading books that are outside of my own experience or, or get me out of the single story that my life tells it helps me to not see myself as the hero all the time. And,
1: and instead kind of recast and mm-hmm. says, okay, where where do I fit actually in all of this? And yet it does it in such a sneaky way because I do not know your motives, but I doubt that you picked up The Marrow Thieves thinking, okay, it's time to re-examine everything I learned in 11th grade history. Class.
0: Right. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> 100% true. I mean, in a, in a lot of ways, I think that's one of the best things about story. It's sneaky. And you know what, it's easy to argue with people's opinions. It's hard to argue with with someone's story. And so in a lot of ways, I think that's what the best books kind of can do for us is uh, open up your heart to someone else's experiences, the way someone else sees the world. And then that changes and, and deepens how you see the world, right? Because then that's opened your heart, it's opened your mind. And yet you never would, you know, think of something like that when you pick up a book that's, you know, dystopian young adult literature.
1: <laughs> so. I feel like it's so easy for literature to catch you with your guard down. Oh, absolutely. It just gets over the gate. Tell me about writing a weird book. Did you ever wonder like, can I write this? Is this okay? Is this really a real book? I guess something that I found in my years of podcasting was it took me a while to get to the point where I realized, oh wait, hold on. Like I'm a nine. I don't want to be the boss, but this is my show and I can actually decide what I want it to be, whether or not I want to use that B word. But you are a writer who is the boss of yourself, but also you have a Publisher that you're accountable to, who does really decide what you can and cannot put into the world, and you have a history with your audience. And I feel, I assume you feel like you have a calling with your writing. So I'm wondering if it took you a while to get comfortable with the idea of putting a weird book in the world. You know, I think that in a lot of ways,
0: this book was very different than the first two books that I that I wrote, which took more, you know, of a theological idea, and I would use memoir and story to kind of, you know, uphold. The point that I was trying to make, uh, the argument that I was making, even though as a nine, I hate the word argument. <laughs> that happened. But with this book in particular, it's much more story driven. Even though I have often, in, in particular, people who have journeyed with me for a number of years or, or are familiar with me or my work, either it's through, you know, writing or through my work, you know, preaching or speaking or, you know, wherever else maybe our, our paths have kind of intersected. I joke a lot about being happy clappy, right? I joke about, being in the charismatic renewal movement and being someone who kind of is, is rooted within that tradition. But I haven't really ever pulled the curtain back on that for what that actually means in my life and what that actually looks like. And I find that as someone who comes from that tradition, um, which carries with it a tremendous amount of baggage, I think especially since the 60s, You know, either because of uh, the renewal movement that happened in the 60s and the growth of the Jesus People movement and, you know, revivals and things that happened in the 90s in particular around the Toronto Blessing and here and there. So there can be a lot of toxicity or damage or abuse within some of the practices that emerged within the churches at that time. And so for me, it's a complicated legacy, right? It's one that you want to acknowledge while still saying, and yet I still find life within these practices, within this this openness even to the Holy Spirit, the intimacy and activity of the Holy Spirit in my life. And so for a lot of people, that's weird, right? And I can acknowledge that that's weird. And so for me in this story, I wanted to be able to pull together all those disparate parts of Myself, and not just in terms of uh, miracles, but in terms of unanswered prayers. And what does it look like to have room for both our joy and our sorrow? What does a room to have look for? You know, room for both hope and grief. And so, I think that in a lot of ways, the book was weird because I was looking for a way to say it's both and that it doesn't have to be either or. In this instance, that you can have room for expanding your vocabulary and language and understanding of what it means to be touched by the miraculous. By the Holy Spirit, even if that's a name that works for you, but then also in the absence of that and what that actually might look like. And so, you know, I think that in a lot of ways, the reading life that I have cultivated over the last 40 years gave me permission to tell that story, gave me permission to be honest, because at that point then, I didn't really have an argument I was trying to make wasn't trying to win anybody over to my way of, of seeing things or being as much as just saying, mm-hmm. here is a story and it can stand. And just in the same way we were talking about the books earlier, how they can get over the gate or sneak in through the side or whatever else it is. There can then be openness for experiences mm-hmm. and stories that are different than your own, but also ones that expand us, mm-hmm. hopefully, right? That reignite
1: curiosity and wonder. Even if they're not easy to categorize, even if you're not entirely sure what shelf they go on.
0: Right. I think that that... You know, at the end of the day, the books that often I connect with the most are the ones that are the least categorized. In a lot of ways, I think I like the ones that are a bit messy. I like the ones that are one part, one thing and one part the other. And they can, you know, pull it, pull it together in a way that, that opens that up. I think one of the first times that I realized that I could write the way that I actually experience God and the way that I actually experience life. And for me, I really wanted my books to Mm -hmm. feel very seamless with that. Uh, Not like something that was like set apart, you know, and different than how I actually talk or how I actually experience God or how I actually move through my life. It was encountering writers like Kathleen Norris and Madeline Langell who were writing about theological truth, who were writing about hard things and difficult things and complicated things, but they were writing about it not in spite of their life, but through their life. That messiness or that sense of there's not a systematic theological way of being able to understand their books. You have to almost fully immerse yourself in them and experience them. Mm -hmm. That's always really drawn to me because I remember reading them and feeling like, oh, maybe there's room for me. Maybe there's room for someone who doesn't, you know, experience God in the systematic theological way, even though I read those books and I appreciate them and I'm grateful for them and I'm glad for everything they've brought to my life, but it's more immersive. Mm-hmm. And so, defying those categorizations, are their books theological? Are they spiritual memoir? Are they, you know, just a straight memoir? Are they a way of understanding Christian living? Like, where, where do you even shelve these things? That gave me permission to write the book. I don't have to worry about where it will be categorized or that it, how it will be marketed, because that's useless.
1: Instead, I can just write what's true. (laughs) (laughs) All the marketers are shaking their heads right now. Well, at first when you said that you felt like your reading life gave you the permission to write, at first I thought what you meant was that since your reading life was all over the map and yet in composite, it created something profoundly meaningful I thought that might be what you meant like I have you know I have this story about my body and I have this story about a trip I took and I have this story about my faith and they don't all neatly come together when you put the pieces side by side you still get a full picture that carries a lot of weight at first that's how I was visualizing it in my head you know what it makes me think of is Annie Dillard have you read her
0: Yes. Yeah, I really like
1: Annie Dillard. So I remember reading Pilgrim at Tinker Creek in college. The only thing I'd read by her previous to that was an excerpt of the writing life in English class when I was like 17 years old, which is the age where you can comprehend some amazing literature like, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. Like I can see that Mm -hmm. this is fantastic. But then some great literature that you will come to love as an adult still goes straight over your head because bless your heart, you're only 17. But I remember half our freshman seminar was awestruck. Like it's amazing what she could do with her disconnected images of basically nature walks from her nature walks that she took in Virginia. And the other half of the class was just like, (laughs) nothing goes together. Is this real? Are we sure this is good? Because like this isn't a book. This is just a bunch of stuff that doesn't quite fit. And I think there's a real power to building an imagination that can see how things that don't obviously fit together belong together because this is the world we live in
0: yeah i think so and i think that even that sense of um margaret feinberg used had a book by this title where she called it scouting the divine Um, i've never read this yeah and it's you know it's a great book but there's I've loved that phrase, "scouting the divine," ever since I first, you know, heard heard it in uh, from her work. But there's this sense, even from Annie Dillard, of you know, people sometimes you either get it or or you kind of don't, right? Not every book is for every person, and I think in a lot of ways this book will probably be like that. Right? Like I had this sense, <laughs> I had this sense when I was writing it, and even when I was putting it out into the world, it's either really, really going to land with people, or it's really, really not. And there's not really a um, a middle ground, I think, for that, because it does, you know, pull together all of these different moments and encounters. And there's this theme that's running through all of it, but there's also a lot of counterbalance For everything that happens, there's, you know, almost an equal opposite reaction or a thing that, you know, counterbalances Mm -hmm. that. And sometimes people want the neatly packaged story. They want the bow on the end. And that's not what this is, right? And so I think in a lot of ways, the unresolved nature of it is one of the things that I think people struggle with, with um, Annie Dillard, is that you have to almost release the need for resolution, and just be carrying along and and, and, uh, and held within her words in that way, and like just fully enter into it. Obviously, I'm not in the same category as Annie Dillard by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> but that same sense, I think, is kind of there in terms of just the resolution isn't the point. Here's three takeaways in a text is not the point.
1: Something we say all the time on the show is not every book is for every reader, and that is just fine. And I have to remind myself as an author as well, like that is as true of my books as it is of anyone else's.
0: And yet you want it to be that way. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like I really um, understood that in a new way that this uh, past couple of years um, since starting the Evolving Faith community and gathering because one of the things that we realized really quickly is not everything's for everyone. And that's hard, right? You want to be able to create something that is for everybody, that everybody's going to love and enjoy and feel at home with. But if you try to create something for everyone, you end up creating nothing for nobody, right? And so in a lot of ways, then you end up saying nothing. And so in a lot of ways, that was a good reminder for me just to say, I may lose some people, But the ones I'm speaking to, I'm really just going to speak to them. And the ones who it's for Mm. is the ones who it's for now. That's not to say that, you know, there's not something really valuable, I think, for everybody, even in things that don't necessarily appeal or speak to you. I mean, I've read a lot of books that I don't think were necessarily for me. And yet I almost feel like I'm eavesdropping, right, in on a conversation. And I get Mm. to, you know, still glean something and still learn something, even if maybe it wouldn't be my favorite experience that I've ever had. And I think that there's benefits to that. But at the same time, I think as a writer, if you're always trying to hedge your bets so nobody's mad, then you're not writing anything true. And so sometimes in order to be true, you've just simply got to state what you know in the moment you know it, even if maybe it's not for
1: everyone. So if you do read so widely, how do you decide what to read next?
0: Oh, I listen to you, of course. But
1: But we talk about more books in a show than most people can read in three to six months. So, I mean, you got to narrow something down.
0: I mean, I keep an eye on things that are currently happening right now. And I'll usually try to grab a few books every month that are, you know, being talked about culturally right now or that everybody's reading, you know, whether it's Daisy Jones and the Or, you know, whatever else is kind of happening right now. Of course, I always read whatever Inspector Gamash book comes along, and that's always going to happen. <laughs> the Canada Reads ones, as I talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times I'm reading things that are just catching my eye or my interest based on where my thought is. And sometimes it can feel a little bit like following breadcrumbs. Right in a forest, where I'll read one particular book, and they'll reference one. This is particularly for a lot of the theological reading that I do. You know, read a book, and they'll mention that they're influenced by or they'll quote someone, and I'll be like, "Oh, well, let's go and find out who that person is." And then that kind of opens Mm up uh, the door as well, and kind of keeps that uh, moving on. I think another place where I get a lot of um, recommendations actually is through uh, people who interact with me through field notes because by now, a lot of times they'll know my style, they know what I like to read. And so there's often, you know, a lot of recommendations and responses and comments. And, you know, you should check this one out and, and this and that. And so that's been really helpful for me as well, to be able to find books. But honestly, sometimes I just simply go to the library and just whatever jumps out. And sometimes that works. And sometimes it really, <laughs> really doesn't. <laughs> and I think that's one of the benefits of having, you know, a public library, where you can just experience books without having, to feel bad if you didn't like it. And you just kind of crap out halfway through and are like, you know what, not for me. You know, easy to kind of feel like it's low stakes and you can experiment a bit more, which is fun because that's how actually I ended up discovering a lot of the uh, more modern books that I'm really enjoying and uh, Canadian literature in particular, because they'll be featured right in your local library or have them there. And then all of a sudden that just leads you on the on the path and away you go.
1: I love the path. What a path to be on. Like I'm always trying to pull people on the path, which goes back to how you started, just absolutely evangelical about the reading life. So Sarah, I'm so curious how you chose your books, because sometimes you can look at your nightstand, I imagine, and think like, these books cannot all belong to the same person, and yet they do. Every week on this show, we ask our guests to tell us three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately, and I recommend three titles you should read next. So Sarah, what did you choose for your first book? Uh,
0: The first book I chose was A Circle of Quiet. By Madeline Lingell, which won't be a surprise probably to anyone who's you know <laughs> part of my life for longer than <laughs> a hot second. That book, as I said earlier, gave me a lot of permission as a writer. It allowed me to say, "Okay, I can write from the center of my life, and not you know just have to have God be something separate and outside of my life that I, I visit now and again, but instead can be fully infused and you know fully within." Uh, My life as I understand it right now. But honestly, the reason why I chose it is because the moment when I encountered that book, I was in my early 30s. At that point, we had had three babies in four years, and I was tired. You know, I think like a lot of people, right? You're working and, you know, you have your, you're running your life and you have all these little people around and just feeling a little bit disconnected even from myself and what was going to be next and what life was going to look like and, you know, resetting and re-understanding, you know, this new season of our life. And I was reading that book, um, which I actually found in a thrift store one day. And I came across this phrase where she talked about how her and her husband, uh, Hugh, she referred to the season of life that I was currently in as their tired thirties.
1: Oh, uh uh-huh. And
0: I just felt so viscerally seen Mm -hmm. in that phrase. And she goes on to talk about how she would be so tired that she would sit down at the typewriter and literally fall asleep on it. And I was like, That's how I feel, you know, in that moment. And I think it was the first time I'd had that experience of being a writer and being a mother reflected back to me in a way that felt really, um, true and validating and gave me permission to just simply let that be true. Right. Because a lot of times when you are in that season of life, someone's trying to help you just kind of get out of it or teach you hacks and tricks and this and that, and, you know, hustle harder, strive more, you know, that sort of thing. And that is not the narrative I needed at that moment. And hearing that phrase gave me a lot of permission. It led me to read and to write in the edges of my life instead of feeling like it needed to be all or nothing. It gave me permission to find the scraps of time and moments when I could write or when I could encounter God or when I could walk or when I could, you know, read, you know, a couple of pages in a book or, you know, I remember reading poetry when my kids would be in the bathtub, right? And, you know, I just would sit on the, on the side of the tub and and keep an eye on them and, you know, just moments to kind of still remember who I was and what was really going on and, uh, while still being very present and connected with my family. And so, yeah, that was, that was a book that was very meaningful to me at that season of my life, but has continued to be meaningful um, and also gave me a lot of permission and a model even as a writer.
1: I remember reading that book also in my early 30s, despite the fact that I read so many of her novels when I was younger and just feeling, oh, this is a writer I can trust. Mm. She, she gets it. I'm in good hands. That's very true. Sarah, what did you choose for your second novel?
0: The Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, which we we kind of touched on a little bit already. That's a book that is um, a perfect Saturday night book for me. I mean, I oftentimes will feel like there's you know there's beach reads, there's this read. This is one of those ones that's like it's storming outside. You have your cup of tea beside you. I can read it cover to cover in an evening, and it is deeply satisfying. It's not cloying. It's not sweet. It's not precious. It's just true and good. It makes you feel like your faith in humanity gets restored a little bit, even as your heart gets broken. Oh, what a wonderful way to put it! Yeah, it is a great book. A great characters. I mean, and all written, um, you know, through the lens of letters, which is a a style of book that you don't read a whole lot anymore. And, uh, and I really liked it. Yeah, so that's a fantastic book. It's one, and I think that's one of the reasons why I put it in there is a book that I love because I do reread it often, um, like comfort food always feel reset and reminded about what I believe most about people. And Sarah,
1: what'd you choose for your third favorite?
0: Uh, The third favorite is one that you will probably share with me, or at least uh, have a lot of familiarity with. Is Persuasion by Jane Austen.
1: I mean, I can't argue with Jane Austen. (laughs) And yet you didn't just say Jane Austen, you chose Persuasion. So tell me more about that.
0: Persuasion was one I came to you know, the way that most people are introduced to Jane Austen through Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility. And I think I was in university and I had read those two books and loved them. And my parents for Christmas had bought me, you know, a set of the, um, you know, mass market paperbacks of Jane Austen, because I'd said that this was the author I was really into at the moment. And so it had, you know, all of them there, um, you know, just the little paperbacks with the pictures on the front. And, you know, it's the slimmest one in the bench. And I was like, "Oh well, this will be good to read over Christmas holidays while I'm home before I head back to university." And I stayed up all night. I just loved it so much. It was so funny. It was so clever, and yet it had this really true and good love story. I was like, "I feel like everybody's sleeping on this one <laughs> because everybody really, really <laughs> likes these other other two, or you know, even Mansfield Park or whatever else." And the whole time, I'm like, "This slim book is practically perfect in every." single way. It is clever and funny and loving and passionate and romantic and true. And I just fell in love with that book. And so it's another one that I read frequently. It is a very satisfying book.
1: Okay. I feel like I'm doing some kind of weird twisty thing with Mr. Knightley's words, but do you feel like you love it more because others seem to appreciate it less?
0: (laughs) That is so good.
1: Uh, Maybe. I think that probably all of us enjoy that, that Little
0: feeling of loving something nobody else really knows about fully yet, and in some ways, Mm -hmm. you'll a lot of us will feel like, well, the more people like it, the more you just almost get like possessive. (laughs) You don't love it and get it like I do. (laughs) And if something is is really becomes like a supernova of popularity, that's when you're just like, now it's dead to me. And so I think that's true. I think that's true of probably most of us, especially those of us who are you know really avid readers and get very attached to uh, to books. But it's it's one of those ones that I really enjoy putting in the hands of people who like to talk about Jane Austen, you know, and just are, are really into Pride and Prejudice, or they'll talk constantly about, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, adaptations on TV and things. And I'm just like, okay, well, you need mm-hmm. to read this one.
1: Sarah, what's not for you?
0: You know, there's a lot of books that I could have picked for this one, but I picked the the only book that I actually opened my front door and fired it out into the front street. <laughs> <laughs> That's intense. <laughs> I don't even oh, I always feel bad kind of naming them right
1: did, did you go get it later no <laughs> I did not did it get driven over did it just like rot in your lawn no I threw it in the street and I'm pretty sure
0: my neighbor picked it up and disposed of it or did something with it because I, I went back to get it later and it, it was oh, gone Sarah
1: and her books. it was gone you You know how they are at number 123 <laughs>
0: She, if it's one that she likes, then she's standing on my front porch with it going, you have to read it, you have to read it. <laughs> There's a sense of rage, though, that I had with this book. It just tapped into something. I was part of a women's Bible study, book study, with a group of Christian women. I was a young, newly married, uh, early 20s at the time. And this was the book that was chosen. It was one called The Excellent Wife by Martha Pierce. And it was advocating for a form of marriage that was deeply rooted in the idea of the man being the head of the home and the wife being the submissive helper the assistant like the one who ran you know like the office manager of the house as chapter after chapter went through I was like I didn't think I could get madder and I just would turn the page and I get even more mad (laughs) it just continued the whole way through until finally I think at one point when it was like talking about the evils of having a career and working outside the home or something that was the moment when I was like listen we're done here. And so I opened my front door and I fired it right out into the street and I quit the Bible study and that was that. I was a great pastor's wife, by the way, I should add.
1: <laughs> I never doubted it. Oh my gosh. So this is the only book that's gotten the front door into the street treatment? The only one. I have had a lot of
0: books that I have not liked or that I have not appreciated mm-hmm. or that I, you know, were not for me, as you were saying. But mm-hmm. that was one I think the reason why I fired it out the street is because it was positioning something that not only was toxic and damaging and uh, broken, but it was baptizing it in sacred language and acting like that was God's best for you. And I just was like, big capital letters, nope. Even then, right? And I mean, that was, you know, years before, you know, I did a lot of deep diving into more Christian feminist thought and, you know, wrote Jesus Feminist and, you know, kind of engaged in a lot of the conversations around women's rights and responsibilities and not only within the world, but within the church in particular, which is obviously where my lane primarily is. But
1: even then, you know, there was just this sense, it was upsetting I always feel uneasy when I'm reading a book that doesn't feel like it was delivered from a place that was healthy. Mm-hmm. Not that we're all completely healthy, but, oh, working through your stuff on paper and then putting it in other people's hands to read. Yikes. Right? I mean, I don't know. I just,
0: I feel like, I think it was Nadia Boltzweber who said, I don't preach it, and in my case, read it, or pardon me, write it, until I am, you know, communicating or writing or preaching, not out of a gaping wound, but out of a healed scar. Right. And so I think that I love that phrasing, right? It's been a really helpful metaphor for me, especially because a lot of times as a writer, you are writing in the heat of a moment, right? You're writing in a, in a, when something is actually happening. And I have found that, you know, that's what your journal is for. That's what your therapist is for. That's, I feel that way, that level of frustration sometimes with, you know, for instance, you know, if I would read like a book on parenting and they had like a three year old or, if I read a book about marriage and they'd been married for like six months,
1: I would just
2: be like, (laughs) listen,
0: listen, bless it. (laughs) But but also, I don't know. I just, I I still feel like the further I get into marriage, the further I get into uh, mothering, the less inclined I am to package the answers up that have worked for me and give them to people en masse and say, here's a script for you. And I feel like books like that and the books that oftentimes I am least drawn to are the ones that are deeply prescriptive that say, here's here's the box. Everybody has to fit in it. Everybody's experiences have to fit in it. Everybody's you know dynamics have to fit in it. And, and there's no room for someone for whom that story is not true. But even more than that, for the acknowledgement that that's not necessarily even always true for you. Mm-hmm. I think that that's one of the things that is often really unhelpful. Probably another reason why I don't see myself writing a book on marriage anytime soon.
1: I'm 20 years in and I still feel like I'm learning all the time. I'm glad you articulated that. That is a deeply prescriptive book that assumes a lot about where you're coming from and what kind of world you want to live in. We're just going to do novels all day long. How's that?
0: Yeah, I think that sounds like a much better choice.
1: (laughs) What are you reading now, Sarah?
0: You know, there's a number of books that I've been reading lately, of course. Um, A couple that have been really great. Uh, We talked about The Five Wives by Joan Thomas, which just won the Governor General's Award here in Canada. And it's a uh, novelization and retelling of the Operation Aka experience, so which happened you know, back in the 50s and 60s. A lot of evangelicals who had any exposure to Elizabeth Elliot or the Nate Saint story, it's a retelling of that from a non-religious perspective. So in a way, it feels like anthropological. Oh, interesting. And I could not put it down. Seeing the things that deeply shaped you or the people who were shaping you, um, especially things like missionary culture and the evangelical hero complex that oftentimes, you know, exists within the church during that time of life, seeing it from the perspective of someone who is respectful and loving, and you can tell has a lot of tenderness for the subject, and yet there's a remove from it so that you can kind of almost see it through new eyes. Right or see a see a story you once thought you knew, you know very differently. And so yeah, it's Harper. If people like the Poisonwood Bible, uh, I think they'll really really like that book. I Love the Poisonwood Bible. If you liked that one, you'll really like it. It might be a bit disruptive if you still have a lot of that story on a pedestal that you don't want to you know peek under the the edge of the the curtain for. But mm-hmm. I really liked that book uh, recently. It'll probably be in my top ten for the year. Another one um, I just recently finished was I Bring the Voices of My People by Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes and it is a womanist view of racial reconciliation, which is phenomenal. Uh, Dr. Walker-Barnes, I heard her preach at Our Last Evolving Faith. She is so powerful and yet accessible for people. And so if people have had any kind of passing interest in racial reconciliation conversations, I think this is a really necessary addition to that canon, particularly from a womanist perspective. It's one that I will probably be revisiting for a long time. Like, it's just, it's got a lot of really important, difficult, and honest things in it that felt like a mirror I needed for even my own work um, as well, even though I'm not within the American story. I still felt Mm -hmm. like a lot of that was reflected back to me. So, that was a really powerful and good one, necessary, I think, for a lot of people to read. And two other ones that I wanted to mention one was uh, Does Jesus Really Love Me? by Jeff Chu. I read this book a couple of years ago when it first came out in 2013, and he's a journalist, and he goes on a pilgrimage to find out what people think about being gay and being Christian. Jeff is a close personal friend of mine now, and so reading it through the lens of knowing him was, you know, I was never not going to love this book. Rereading it now, I think in this moment in time, if since especially a lot of churches and a lot of communities are really grappling with what does flourishing mean for LGBTQ believers? Uh, What does it mean to have inclusion or, you know, to uh, be affirming or not, or, you know, where those things are kind of landing. I find it a really helpful companion for people who are traveling on that road right now, just to see how Jeff, as a gay Christian, is someone who is experiencing the breadth of the American evangelical and, and Christian experience. He visits, what's that one, the Westboro Baptist Church down in Kansas and, you know, visits a affirming church in Denver and then, you know, different communities all across the United States that are encountering these questions of, does Jesus really love you when you are gay? And I just found it heartbreaking and beautiful and meticulous as well. Really uh, a great read. So, that was another one. Sarah, what do you want to be different in your reading life? You know, I think this probably goes back to some of the conversations that we've had throughout. And that is that I, I think I'd like in this moment, in in time, and in this season of my life to read things that bring me more joy. I read a lot of books about hard and complicated and weighty things, you know, especially from a, a nonfiction perspective. And in a lot of ways, even personally, this year has been a heavy and hard one for me. Um, mm-hmm. I lost one of my dearest friends. You know, there's just been a lot of things that have kind of happened behind the scenes that just have meant, you know, life again, all of us, right? We're all, all kind of on that, on that journey and not everything is rainbows and cupcakes and unicorns. This year has particularly felt unrainbow like. <laughs> so in a lot of ways, I was wanting to. See what your recommendations or your thoughts would be because I'm wanting to incorporate more joyful reading into my life, more things that make me feel the way those books that I love, like Circle of Quiet and Guernsey and Persuasion make me feel, which is I love people and I love life and there is something good and whole and redemptive in the midst of even the hard things, things that bring me joy and hope, I think is something I'm wanting to add more in more purposefully. I think it's necessary, um, not only for me, you know, as I come and I'm going through my life, but also because I feel like hope and joy is part of how we um, engage in resistance to the things that are not, you know, and and be able to, we almost have to practice them as like a spiritual discipline, right? That this this is what it's for. This is why we're engaged.
1: Okay, let's do this. And you know what? Sometimes I have the experience of reading a book. I can remember like being propped up in bed with the paperback open in my lap, just grinning. You know how sometimes a, the, the voice of a book just makes you grin?
0: Absolutely. I love that feeling.
1: Recently, I sat down with a book, and I don't know if hope and joy are the words I would use to categorize this book, but I remember sitting down with a new Liz Gilbert book, City of Girls, and just reading the first paragraph and thinking like, oh, this is, this is going to be fun. This is going to be so much fun. Have you read that one?
0: I did. And it was so good. I had very much a similar experience of just being like, I did feel joy.
1: Set in a great time. That's what I wanted to know. Because the thing about the books you're describing is like the Ellen Montgomery's and the Guernsey. Like we remember coming out on the other side. And I find as a reader, I don't necessarily remember all the really hard things that happened to the protagonist during the book. But I remember that feeling that came at the end. Mm-hmm. And so if you're looking for a book that brings you joy, like, well, how how deep into it do you want to go before you can come out on the other side? Because hope and joy need counterparts. Those don't always feel good.
0: Yeah, Entire
1: sections of a novel.
0: You know, I think that that's actually in cooperation with an idea from uh, theologian Walter Brueggemann that I have really adapted the last number of years of, he talks about how it's only if you've experienced despair that you even have a chance at hope. Right so that it's only if you have despair, it's only if you have experienced deep grief, and I'm paraphrasing deeply here mm-hmm. because that's how you name what is broken, that's how you name what is not as it as it should be or as it could be, and hope is the response to that that hope is is subversive precisely because it dares to name that that is not as it could be or should be. And so in a lot of ways, you have to be able to hold both hope and grief in your hands at the same time. It's it's a useless, toothless, weak hope if you haven't journeyed also through despair, which I think is probably part of the reason why I like currency and I like persuasion is because there is a, a real undercurrent of grief and loss and despair that then casts the light so much brighter right? The candle is, is brighter in the darkness than it is in the
1: daylight. Well, you said Charing crossroad and you said comfort reading. And I have to know if you have read some of my other favorites of that books about books, feel good genre. And one of those is The Uncommon Reader by Alan Bennett. Have you read this one? No, I love books okay. about books. It's got the British and it's got the queen and it's got a bookmobile and it's got a woman who is newly inspired to be Evangelical about what she loves. This book is not new. This book is about 10 years old and it's about 84 Charing Cross Road size. It's a l- tiny little novella and it's about 10 years old. And what happens is the queen is taking her not so obedient corgis for a walk and she's trying to wrangle them. And that's when she discovers a bookmobile parked by the kitchens. She is offered a book to read. And being the gracious royal sovereign that she is, she says, of course I'll borrow a book. I think it's by Avi Compton Burnett, who I've never read, but of course I wanted to. That book's not that great. So she takes it back and to be polite, she borrows another, which is more to her taste. And then she gets another and suddenly the queen has discovered the pleasure of reading. And she wants to make time to read and it's changing her schedule and she's royalty. So she gets to tell other people to read. And the Queen of England becomes an evangelist about the reading life in a hundred pages. And I think you may enjoy it thoroughly on a Friday night in one sitting. I can't remember if it's in the Queen's mouth or not, but there are a few F-bombs that have surprised a few readers. So if you've, you know, (laughs) listeners, just brace yourselves. I I feel like a good writer chooses the words in their books for a reason, and as long as they do that, I can read almost. Any- well, that's not true. I can't read the scary stuff, and we're coming out of scary season. But I will say, you know, there's your warning. But the queen also takes on Jane Austen, which might bring our little episode here full circle.
0: Oh, I'm so excited! I can't wait now for Friday night.
1: <laughs> this is so good. Thank you. Okay, now we're branching a little into more uncertain waters, but I want to hear how these sound to you. Ooh, except one of my shortlisted ones is a Canadian author. Oh, good. But I wasn't going to go there we might have to do a bonus, but let's start with Marisa De Los Santos. Have you read anything by her, Sarah? You know, I don't think I have. I feel like I've seen
0: it though. Isn't there one of them that has like a pair of rubber boots on the front?
1: Yes. But I, I think that might be belong to me and it's not the one I recommend starting with. Okay, The one I'm thinking of for you is actually the third book in the loose series that starts with Love Walked In and then has Belonged to Me, the Rain Boots book. It stands on its own, but something I like about this one is there's there's enough built-in literary references that I think just make it extra fun for book people. This has just come out in the last year or two. It's called I'll Be Your Blue Sky. Says little girl that you first met in Love Walked In. Her name is Claire. She's about to get married because it seems like the right thing on paper but she's not feeling really great about it. And then this woman that she's never seen before comes up to her and drops her a line from C.S. Lewis, Courage, Dear Heart, which is a line from her favorite book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So she immediately knows this is this older woman she's never laid eyes on is a kindred spirit. And she ends up calling off her wedding. And that sounds like a spoiler, but it happens at the very beginning, they call it the non-wedding and it goes through the book. But what I love about this book for you is it tackles really, really serious issues, including um, marital abuse and domestic violence in a way that I think does honor to the subject and to the people who are victims, but she never loses sight of hope and love. And so she's able to go to serious places and still tell a story that makes you smile so big for so much of it. The domestic violence plot is in the past and you have a literary mystery because Claire finds a notebook that turns out to be a log and she discovers that she's living in a place that harbored women on the run at a time when it was illegal to leave your husband, even if your life was in danger. So you've got this 1950s plot going on And then you have this contemporary plot going on and just seeing the themes of found family and friends and family coming together. Love in Places You Don't Expect. And Marisa De Los Santos, she says, this is a hard, heavy world. I want books that are infused with joy. Like That's just the kind of person I am. And that's the kind of books that I think our world needs more of. So knowing this is the author who has you in their hands, and this is where you're going in a story. But you can see the despair right there on the horizon. And yet you know that hope and joy are going to be delivered in the end. And I think you might enjoy it on a Saturday. It's a little longer than the uncommon reader, but you read fast. You might be able to get through it on a Friday night. How does that sound?
0: It sounds like it was created in a lab for me. Thank
1: you. Okay. We're going to wedge in the Canadian. Because I love Bianca Murray. I don't believe she need, deserves to be wedged in, but I can't not tell you about her because of your love for your your writers from the North. But have you read anything by her? Uh, hum, If You Don't Know the Words was her debut. And then her most recent came out summer 2019. It's called If You Want to Make God Laugh.
0: You know, I don't think I've
1: ever even heard of it. She is from South Africa and now she lives in Toronto her books are set in South Africa. She's writing what she knows. I really love her most recent. You could read this. It's not a sequel, although one of the characters from Hum If You Don't Know the Words does make an appearance. This is the story of three women, two sisters named Ruth and Delilah. And the stories of how they got their names are really funny. And the much younger Zadwa. And their lives become intertwined after the sisters discover an abandoned day-old baby on their doorstep. And each woman is dealing with her own, I was going to say junk, but that sounds too lighthearted. Each woman is in crisis and it slowly becomes apparent uh, why and what they're doing about it. And you rotate points of view. So you learn about each woman's secrets and each woman's situation. And you know, as the reader um, what's going on in everybody's lives before they know what's going on in each other's So this book has friendship and found family. And I mean, ultimately, it's about the transformative power of love. And it's such a redemption story. I think it might be for you.
0: Oh, that sounds incredible. I'm so excited to read that. I think that's one of the things that I've recognized I really like is the peek inside of a lot of different people's inner worlds to pass from narrator to narrator or story to story, like, but do telling it from all these different angles. That's something that I really like in a book. And so I am going to add that to my stack right away.
1: Oh, it is my pleasure. Now, this last one I feel like is the least at home among your favorites, but it's got this ending that is so fantastic. This is the new Lily King. So she's best known for her novel Euphoria. Did you ever read that? I don't think I did. No. Okay. Her new one is called Writers and Lovers. This doesn't come out till March. And it's the story of a young writer. I think she's 31. She's trying to make it as a writer. She has a creative writing degree. She's been working on a novel for seven years. Nothing is going well in her life right now. I was thinking this might be good for you. And then you talked about your non-rainbow-like year that you've had. And this is a novel very much about grief. Her mother has died. They were very close She's drowning in student loan debt. It's really looking not good. Um, She's living in Boston in this garage that smells like mold and is falling down. Then she meets somebody and then she meets someone else. And then you see her start to wake up and pull it together in a way that she is really, really happy about. And you are too. And Lily King, I mean, with the story and the symbolism and the meaning, like she has this one description of the writer character like taking a walk and coming across a flock of geese it gets the writer thinking about her mother and when they fly away just the way she describes it the way she can take this ordinary moment and put such emotion and such meaning into a morning walk is really powerful. But also, you're a writer. And it's a book that's set in the world of emerging writers. One of the men that this young writer slash waitress meets is a very successful novelist. And there's so much <laughs> kind of cringy humor about, that relationship because he is successful, but not like John Grisham successful. So he's a little insecure. And now there's this like blossoming novelist in his world. Who's like young and pretty and he's like proud, but it's just, it's funny. It's funny, Sarah, and I think you'd find it funny. I've told you it's going hopeful places, and there's a reason I told you that. But reading the beginning, you might think, really? Are we sure this is going to end well? Seriously, the last 20 pages, the way it comes together, I was just like, oh, that made me so happy. I want to watch it again the same way I want to watch like the last 10 minutes of North and South, or the same way I want to watch the last 10 minutes of Emma. It just has that like you did it. And I'm so happy for you feeling. Well, you tell me, how does that sound to you? Oh, it sounds wonderful.
0: I can't wait. You had me with that last 10 minutes of North and South. I'm just like, (laughs) you you can build your life there.
1: That is Writers and Lovers by Lily King. All right. So we talked about four books. I mean, we talked about all the books today, but of the four titles we talked about, we had The Uncommon Reader by Alan Bennett, I'll Be Your Blue Sky by Marisa De Los Santos, if You Want to Make God Laugh by Bianca Murray and Writers and Lovers by Lily King, which inconveniently is not out till March, but it'll be there. It'll, it'll be there before long. Of those titles, Sarah, which do you think you'll read next?
0: Well, I have already requested all of them <laughs> from the library. Somebody heard me clicking in the background. That was me literally requesting them from my library. I'll Be Your Blue Sky said it was available at my preferred location. So that might be uh, my plans for the weekend. I'm really looking forward to
1: it. I think letting the library decide is an excellent plan. And I hope you have a wonderful Friday night with your books. This has just been an absolute delight. Thank you so much. Hey, readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Sarah, and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. You can leave a comment with suggestions for Sarah on our show notes page at podcast.com slash 211. And that is where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. You can find Sarah online at sarahbessy.com. That's Sarah with an H, B-E-S-S-E-Y.com and at Sarah Bessie on Twitter and Instagram. To subscribe to her delightful newsletter, Field Notes that I mentioned in this episode, visit Bessie.substack.com. And of course, check out her new book, Miracles and Other Reasonable Things, wherever books are sold. If you're on Twitter, let me know there, at Ann Vogel. That is Anne with an E, B is in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. I'm there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next. If you're not on our newsletter list, we're going to have all kinds of event news soon. Get on that now at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter. If you enjoy this podcast and want to support what we're doing here while spreading bookish delight, would you consider giving the readers in your lives my book, I'd Rather Be Reading? It's the perfect little something for those who love reading, regardless of which three books they'd say they'd love. Thanks to the people who make this show happen. What Should I Read Next? is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Bekaczek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rocha said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations, and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful, and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long.